Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Canadian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Phil Henderson, the host of the channel. And today I'll be talking with Dr. Don Wells, who, along with Dr. John Peters, is an editor of Canadian Labour Policy and Politics, published in 2022 by the University of British Columbia Press. Don, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Phil. I wonder if you could begin the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I think, um, you know, it's important uh, information, I guess, that I've taught labor studies and politics for many years uh, uh, at McMaster University. Um, But also um, before teaching at McMaster, I was a a blue collar worker. Um, I was an auto worker and a steel worker and I think that experience taught me a, a lot about the politics of labor. Um, and it taught me about what that means to people and the way they experience it every day, because I experience it as well. Um, my family and I live in Hamilton uh, in Ontario. Um, as you may know, it's a wonderful city with a very long history of, of uh, labor politics and struggles. And um, my family and I have been actively involved in our community, especially around labor issues and uh, poverty issues and environmental issues. So that's a little bit of background. Great. Thanks, Don. Uh, It might be most helpful for the listeners if you could explain what brought you, your co-editor, and the various contributors together to produce this volume. And in addition, maybe talk through who the volume is intended for uh, as an audience and the venue of the text uh, in terms of which sort of programs or uh, departments you think will have most uptake for this kind of work. And then what sorts of new contributions to the study of labor do you think that it offers? All right. Um, so on the first, the first question you asked is what our motivations were, why we, why we got interested in, putting this book together. And I, it, it's fair to say that everybody who contributed to the book uh, is extremely concerned about the, about growing economic inequality in Canada, and especially the massive increase in, in low paid, uh, precarious and often dangerous jobs. Uh, this is a, an epidemic um, and it's, it needs to be, a lot of attention needs to be focused on it. Especially uh, the the for folks who are younger and older workers, um, more especially also for women um, and recent immigrants and uh, racialized workers. So there's this is an enormous concern, and it's an enormous challenge uh, that we need to to face. We wanted to write a book that would be widely accessible, especially for students. So. Uh, I think in particular students in labor studies and political science, industrial relations, labor sociology, labor economics, and, and, and so on. Um, we wanted to help them understand the rise of bad jobs, what causes it, uh, but uh, as important or more important, what can be done about it what, and what people are actually doing about it. So. With that in mind, um, we had a, a number of, um, of values related to the book. Um, one was that it, it has to it had to be very clearly written um, with a without um, a lot of academic jargon. It had to be accessible to people, um, and in in part, it also had to be a book that would provide uh, people with a lot of illustrative examples. Um, so that they could, re- so, so what would seem to be more generalized or abstract contract, uh, con, uh, concepts or data or arguments could be more easily understood by people who maybe didn't have those personal experiences themselves. Um, it also needs to encourage, it was also designed to encourage the readers to think up through these issues for themselves. So not to be so didactic and not to be so, but here are the sources, here is the kind of information you may, here are the kinds of concepts that would help you understand this so that people can come to their own conclusions. And I think that's part of the spirit of the book 
that if we're talking about building a more democratic Canada, we need to have a more democratic way of teaching and learning and, 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 and talking with, with each other. And I think that um, perhaps in many ways, most importantly, we wanted to uh, provide readers with uh, a sense of realistic political alternatives um, and, and, and policies that could help us think about how to develop a, a more progressive uh, politics, a more progressive future uh, for workers and their families and communities. So it, it, it's important that this not be seen as this is the way things are. Um, we're stuck in this and we're not going to get out of it because it, A, it's not true. And, and B, um, uh, I, I, don't, I think that the book needs to provide people with, um, with a sense of, of, of uh, political alternatives. Great, thanks. And I think the uh, point about the accessibility of the book really came through to me upon reading it. Um, and oftentimes, I think in academic writing, there's a tendency to conflate or misconstrue accessibility with a lack of precision. But actually, I thought that one of the real strengths of the text was the real acuity uh, of analysis that was brought in the sense that, especially coming out of as you say, really an effort to make this a text that people can bring into their actual lives and their actual like working lives in particular. Uh, all of that was really tangible and felt like I could easily uh, and confidently hand this book to somebody who is not going to be overwhelmed by the jargon of uh, what often passes in academic literature. So I think in that sense, it's a really rousing success. Just in terms of the mechanics of how you actually went about making the book, because part of the New Books Network, we're interested in like how do books come into the world. Uh, were there any opportunities that the contributors had to come together for workshops or anything like that? No, that's interesting. First of all, and, and I, I appreciate your first comment uh, about the accessibility. And I, one thing I probably should mention is that I think that many of the readers of the book, many of the students that we have, are students who face these problems themselves and have faced these problems themselves and are and, and have jobs and have done jobs exactly like this. So it's it's designed to the book's designed to resonate also with the kind of experiences that the readers oftentimes I think will already uh, have had. So in terms of the second question, um, we didn't have an opportunity collectively to meet together, but um, most of the contributors I have known for a very long time, and there, many of them are very close friends. Um, we've been working on these kinds of issues to, uh, in, in many ways together anyway, so it didn't require that. But what we had was um, a fairly long process of getting feedback from each other about what we, what we thought was strong, what we thought was weaker, what we thought needed to be added. Um, and that included um, oftentimes greater nuance for people so that it wasn't, that we needed to make sure that people understood many of these issues were easily, could be understood, but that, that they weren't oversimplified. And, and I think we helped each other with that. Um, we helped each other in a number of other ways as well, but it wasn't by having meetings together uh, in, in, physically, but it was more like <laughs> like what we're talking about now, maybe talking on the telephone or, or having a Zoom conversation or sending right. each other emails. Right. Um, and, and the text is really quite sweeping. So uh, for readers, it brings together 18 chapters uh, with an enormously helpful glossary uh, and numerous inserts throughout. Uh, and it highlights 26 field-leading contributors, by my count. Uh, this wealth of material is then organized into four overarching sections, uh, or bunches of chapters, that correspond to the four themes that you lay out in the introduction. Could you discuss for the listeners what each of these sections is about, why you chose to organize the material in this way, and what you think it lends to the reader? Yeah, I think uh, the book is organized in what I think is a, a fairly helpful sequence. Um, so uh, the first section explains 
how this crisis of bad jobs has been created in Canada, particularly through the rise of market-oriented neoliberalism, corporate-dominated politics, and also in the context of economic globalization. This is a process that's been going on for approximately 40 years in particular. So the first section provides people with a sense of sort of how we got here. Um, and it provides as well examples of how other countries, rich developed countries like Canada, uh, have done much better than Canada um, by using more progressive labor policies uh, to improve jobs and reduce economic inequality. So we set up a theme at the beginning that we come to uh, throughout the book, but also especially in the in the last section. So first section is a set of how do we get here? What's going on here? What are the key things that we need to know about um, this uh, situation and how we got into it in order to understand how we can get out of it? Um, the middle sections of the book provide the readers with um, uh, specific uh, foci on particular topics. So for example, uh, we look at the um, uh, labor issues in terms of a uh, chapter on uh, a really wonderful chapter on occupational health and safety. We look at issues of racial discrimination, issues of poverty. And then we also look uh, in the middle sections at particular job sectors. So retail and food services, care services, manufacturing, and so on. So there are chapters for each of these to help us ground the analysis of what's actually going on in terms of bad jobs in these sectors. And again, many of these sectors are sectors that students themselves who are reading in the book will have personal experience of. So it's designed to also reflect, in many ways, I think, their own experiences. And then the last, so those are, that's the middle sections, which is the larger section of the book, or the two middle sections. And then the last section focuses on new directions for labor politics to build a more uh, equal and a more democratic uh, Canada. Um, and so we come back to issues like how workers are building power in their workplaces and in their communities um, and how workers are building a just transition uh, to uh, better jobs in a green economy um, and uh, how workers and their organizations and community organizations and workplace organizations are, are uh, helping to build stronger electoral strategies. Um, so it's also about politics of elections as well, but it's not just about the politics of elections. It's a much broader understanding of politics than I think many many of us think about, since we think of, we think of liberal democracy as primarily about voting for governments every once in a while. Um, but the theme for this book is that politics is what we do every day. Yeah, I think that that really powerfully comes through also in the introduction to the text, actually, um, which uses this, I found quite powerful framing device uh, of two young workers, one in Canada and the other in Denmark, uh, in order to discuss their experiences of social life during the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you explain uh, both the circumstances that you lay out in this uh, sort of introductory vignette, uh, and how this relatively short prelude actually sets up the stakes uh, for much of the rest of the book's chapters. Yeah, thank you for for raising that uh, question, Phil. Um, I think a lot of times people think of labor politics as only what happens in the workplace, or primarily what happens in the workplace. Uh, that's certainly uh, an important, uh, extraordinarily important part of this. But it's also about labor policies and social policies. Um, so labor politics is also about uh, social services and social spending policies. So when we're thinking about labor politics, we need to think about healthcare and transportation uh, policies and childcare policies and education policies and training policies and environmental protection and, and increasingly housing uh, uh, the cost of food. These are all these are all issues that we're so many of us are grappling with all the time now. So, um, what what we tried to do here in this particular vignette is to include an emphasis on what's called the social wage. 
not just the wage we make at work, important as that is, but also the social wage that is in a democratic society available to all of us or large, or large numbers of us through social policies and that are major supports for us uh, in our lives together outside the workplace. Um, so in order to show this uh, and also to show again how Canada is doing so poorly relative to other countries that um, that are similar to Canada in many ways, uh, we created this this vignette of uh, of, a, of um, two people in Copenhagen, Denmark, and two people in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, so in Vancouver, uh, when the pandemic started, Jessica was laid off from two low-paid part-time jobs, and uh, she's so she's. She, she doesn't have uh, a job anymore. Uh, and Jessica her uh, um, and her partner, Marta, share a, a small two-bedroom apartment with two others, and they pay $2,400 a month in rent. And for those people who know about Vancouver, they know, and El Toronto and many other places, they know what's happening uh, to rents. On top of that, Jessica has a $26,000 student debt which is also an, a, a huge burden for so many uh, people today, so many students today. Um, and um, Marta's student debt is over 35000 They both graduated from uh, university, uh, and they both got CERB uh, after the pandemic started, but it's not enough. They're very, you know, they're very worried about how they're going to be able to keep going. This is contrasted to uh, Jen's, the experience of Jen's and, and Anna in Copenhagen. They have no student debt, zero student debt. Post, post-secondary education is free. Um, and they live in affordable rent, an, an affordable rent-controlled apartment. They have a two-year-old daughter, uh, and the daughter gets high-quality daycare, not far from them. Um, and there are no fees for the high quality daycare. Um, when Anna took maternity leave from her job, she got good maternity benefits. And when Jens and Anna were laid off uh, during the pandemic, they both continued to get paid. So that sketch shows a couple of things. One is how important the non-work social policies are, labor policies are. And the second is how inadequate Canada's social wage is compared to to workers in Denmark uh, and I think a, a lot I think that 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 vignette and that comparative vignette uh, probably resonates with an awful lot of people uh, and many people I think would be surprised uh, at the comparison with Denmark um, and say well they can do this in Denmark why can't we do that here in Canada so that's that's the value I think of that of that vignette. And could you talk a little bit, uh, Don, about the ways in which that resonates throughout each of the chapters as well, or or maybe each section as a whole, in the sense of, as you say, it it forces uh, not only a conversation but to, to really conceptualize labor uh, not as a separate sphere of life, but as always enmeshed within part of like a social totality basically and part of what is at stake in my reading of the text is you have to think about not just the conditions uh that of work that occur at the point of production so to speak in like an old jargony term uh but about the way in which that point of production is always made possible by a broader set of social relationships right so i mean when we when we come toward the the last section of the book in particular, we talk about um, new labor strategies and new labor tactics uh, that workers themselves are developing, often sort of bottom up, um, and that uh, and that unions are developing as well. That don't just focus on the workplace, but link the workplace to the community. Uh, so this concept of community unionism and organizing. So. For example, it's uh, it's been very difficult, oftentimes, to or, to organize janitors and cleaners 
it's been very difficult oftentimes to organize people who are food service workers. Um, and many of those food service workers uh, and those janitors and so on work in particular communities. So, for example, um, in, in the United States in particular, um, the Justice for Janitors campaign in California was centered around uh, Hispanic workers very often. Um, and so they developed connections to the community uh, through the faith organizations and through um, the uh, different kinds of organizations that people had developed in the community to organize and to link the, the, the kind of life people have in the community and the kind of support for each other they have in the community to the kind of life that they have in the workplace and the kind of support they can have for each other in the workplace. And that led to some extraordinarily successful, has led to some extraordinarily su- successful uh, campaigns and improvements in, in wages and working conditions as well as community conditions. Um, so that's, that's one example of the importance of not seeing workers simply in, as n- narrowly defined workers. The concept that um, we use throughout the book is the concept of the whole worker, that we are workers as workers, not just when we're at work, but we're workers when we're in the education system, we're workers when we're in the healthcare system, we're workers when we're trying to get decent education for our kids, et cetera, et cetera. And that, I think that's a, a theme that we tried to develop uh, as, as, as much as, as relevant in, in probably each, each, of, the, each of the chapters. Mm-hmm. I think it also is something, um, as I was reading it over the past few weeks, uh, that sets up really well to be suspicious of certain um, presently dominant social discourses around things like uh, inflation, but also the moral panic around crime. And I live in Toronto. One of the primary things that's at stake right now is the really real uh, rise of violence that's occurring on the TTC, but the way in which City Hall is using that as a way to justify an expansion of police services in the TTC, rather than an expansion of the social wage in other places that could actually adequately respond to the underlying conditions that produce social violence. Uh, And so I thought it was a really helpful framework to think about uh, this notion of you can actually be concerned about the real violence that TTC workers or TTC passengers might experience without lapsing into a notion of carcerality as the necessary response. Uh, And I I just thought it was a very useful text to be reading in the current moment uh, in light of that as well. Um, You write of the sort of seemingly ever worsening situations for working people in Canada, and I'm going to quote extensively here, that quote, the main difficulty isn't a shortage of progressive policy options or evidence that more worker-friendly, environmentally responsible, and democratic policies would benefit societies such as Canada. The fundamental problem lies in the power of corporations, the influence of employer organizations, and the ubiquity of corporate media. Could you discuss what you mean by corporate power for instance, is it merely the power to influence, or is there something more immediate uh, at stake here? And additionally, could you explain the countervailing notion of worker and or community power that many of the contributors to this volume point towards as both fundamental for a democratic society and in need of des- uh, in desperate need of revitalization today? Yeah, it's a... Thank you for that question, Phil. It's it's a it's a critical question. I mean, I think that um, a lot of us think of politics in a narrow sense, and they think of power in a narrow sense. So they think of power, for example, as a corporation giving a donation to a politician, or a corporation bringing senior civil servants under their boards of directors when the civil servants retired as a as a an inf- a way of influencing and rewarding them for, for having um, been uh, promoting corporate friendly policies and anti labor policies, uh, and that's certainly an important part. There's no question 
There's no question about this. But it's we've gone a lot further than that. And the challenge to democracy, the liberal democracy, which is in many ways is always a rather shallow democracy, overly focused on elections and, and not so much focused on these kind of power relationships in society. Um, it extends well beyond influence, as important as that is. Um, it, it's not just about this corporate influence over our politicians, over our political parties and over our governments and over our you know, senior government bureaucrats, because increasingly corporate power is embedded in government structures. It's structural. And the example that I think most Canadians probably are most aware of um, is uh, the corporate-dominated international investment and trade agreements, such as you know, Canada's agreement with uh, the U.S. and Mexico. What does that do? What does that agreement do? It depoliticizes, takes it away. It's no longer, we can no longer discuss this. It facilitates the outsourcing of jobs from Canada to Mexico, where labor standards are much lower. Um and where labor productivity is comparable and sometimes is actually higher in Mexico. So this means that many workers in Canada are facing possible job losses if they promote a higher pay, better labor standards, uh, better health and safety, and so on. That means that by taking uh, those decisions outside of the politics of, you know, it's, it's institutionalized now, it's it's structural, it's it's part of a of a an international constitution. That's real corporate power. That's not just about influence. That means that the logic is don't fight back too hard, or the penalty will be massive. And it's not us. It's just the way. It's the new reality that we've we've constructed. So that's why, when we talk about in the book about the importance of building a stronger worker power both at the workplace level and at the community level, uh, we're thinking in terms of the need to offset this, this, it's not just corporate influence, it's a deep structural corporate power um, in society and we need to develop in Canadian society, we need to develop in Canadian society the countervailing uh, capacities to promote a much more genuinely democratic politics. Um, and that the, a big theme in the book is the importance of the growing linkages between unions and communities and workers in terms of identity as a worker and workers as identities as community members and citizens and family members and so on. Uh, we need to have that broad conception of, of politics if we're going to be able to tackle this massive concentration of corporate power that's, that's so deeply institutionalized now. And this might bleed in some ways into my next question, but I wonder if you could also uh, offer a few sort of concrete examples of what worker power looks like. Uh, so in some ways, I think the most dramatic and obviously in some ways the most powerful thing that comes to mind is the strike, obviously, the capacity of organized workers to withhold their labor. Uh, but I imagine that there are other forms that worker power can take, especially if we're interested in community unionism as well. So what is worker power or what does it look like on the ground? Uh, so let's take, um, let's take the example that you raised of, of community unionism. Um, and I and I think I'm, I mentioned that um, earlier. Um, community unionism is not only organizing workers um, in their workplaces, but also working organizing workers organizing and organizing themselves in their neighborhoods. Uh, and a lot of times, for example, that can be through faith organizations. It can be through ethnic organizations. It can be through neighborhood networks. It can be through rights organizations, you know, people who are, who are demanding rights for immigrant workers and so forth uh, for themselves and for others. Um, so that's that's one broad um, expansion of, of, a, of a realm of what we mean by politics, by the linking of communities of workers to, uh, to workers in their workplaces. 
And another one is, especially when it's been very difficult to organize unions, um, uh, workers have been turning to what's broadly been called um, solidarity unionism. Um, and that's, uh, that's and I, we talk about that in, in the book, in which workers organize their workplaces themselves from the bottom up. They don't have a formal union. Um, but they they care about each other, they support each other, they have solidarity with each other on and off the job, um, and they help each other. They help each other if, uh, if supporting each other if uh, somebody has a health and safety issue on the job or if, if somebody's been facing a, a face cut or somebody's facing harsh, um, unfair supervision. And a lot of times that means that um, it means that that personal supports collective because it might mean, for example, that people will march on on the the boss's offices and say we're not going to work unless you unless you uh, correct this injustice. Um, and that's the kind of culture that we're talking about a cult, a political culture um, that is embedded, uh, and that becomes a basis for a lot of other things. So when we talk about strikes, we oftentimes think about it as everybody shuts down, leaves the plant or leaves the workplace, goes on strike for a few days, they bring in an arbitrator, they send you back. That's that's one version of a strike. But think about strike as a capacity that's built through solidarity and work in the workplace. That's a much, I think, oftentimes a much it's 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 more difficult in many ways, but it's also can be much more profound, and it can give you a, an insight into the way in which new forms of worker power can and, and in some places are being built. Right, and what that means then uh, is that worker power is not something that's located in the institution of the union, but rather in the strength of the social relationships between workers themselves. Actually, that. The union is an expression of social relations and is only as strong as those bonds are themselves. Is that right? If you yes, if you look well, if you look at the origins of the of the industrial unionism in Canada and the United States, what was it built on? It was built on extraordinary strikes in which workers in Flint, Michigan, for example, in the nineteen in nineteen thirty six or thirty seven, sat down. They just said, "We're we're sitting down." We're not going to work. It 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 was in in terms of occupations of of the plants. You didn't just go out on strike and strike from the outside. Inside the occupations, workers fed themselves, protected themselves, etc. Did their own public relations. Uh, people from the community provided them with food, etc. And intelligence about what was going on. These are the kinds of. This is the origins of of contemporary industrial unionism. Um, it, it starts with that kind of um, that kind of power in which you say is informal union power, but it's it, it can be extraordinarily powerful. The the labor movement's been increasingly institutionalized and in many ways some of the uh, many ways that power that workers had been exercising uh, had been exercising to create the unions was elevated to the higher levels of the of the labor movement and in some ways uh, in important ways weakened the labor movement and so i think what we're talking about here is a context in which we're seeing some signs of a return to the kind of unionism that we saw earlier in the 1930s 1940s 1950s here in canada and the united states and other and other places as well britain is another good example of that right um in your chapter in the book uh, entitled Organizing for Better Work, you discuss a number of distinct theories, strategies, and coalitional formations that unionists are deploying in their efforts to organize for greater worker power and a more socially just world. We've touched on some of these already. Uh, on my read, this chapter pairs very well with one by Rafael Gomez and Jennifer Harmer earlier in the book, uh, which is entitled why it's hard to organize a union and negotiate a decent contract, the subject matter of which is pretty self-explanatory in the title. Could you discuss for the listeners, what are some of the major structural hurdles, economic, political, and judicial, facing unions in Canada today, 
even as there seems to be a public groundswell of support for unionism. Uh, and also highlight some of the various strategies that you suggest organizers are using or could use to break out of these constraints. Yeah, so that's that's a key issue here, because on the one hand, we have these formal rights to join unions. Huge numbers, 70 some odd percent of Canadians say that they, they, they're in favor of unions, that many of them want to belong to unions and so on. So it's not as if this isn't something that people want. So they, formally, people have the right to, to join unions. Well, what does that mean? In the chapter that um, that you referred to by Rafael Gomez and Jennifer Harmer, um, they stress how uh, and explain how labor laws are designed to prevent workers from exercising the right to, to join unions. So it's a formal right, but then we we create labor laws to make sure that it doesn't get exercised. So a key one that they focus on is that the law requires um, unions to organize one workplace at a time, one workplace at a time. That's extremely costly and it's extremely time consuming. And most unions don't have the resources to organize small workplaces one at a time. So consider what it's like if, you know, if you're trying to organize Tim Hortons one coffee shop at a time. Or, you know, you've probably been seeing references to Starbucks organizing, I think, something like 300 Starbucks uh, coffee shops um, now have got organizing campaigns going on in them. Um, um, that's that's uh, a recipe for people not being able to organize. And it's a recipe then for people to turn to other forms of unionization. What happens when you do, after going through all that, all those barriers, and you manage to organize a Starbucks or you manage to organize a Tim Hortons or whatever? What happens often over and over and over again is that the first contract is almost impossible to negotiate because management, as soon as you organize and before you organize the union, they've started their anti-union campaign. Uh, part of the anti-union campaign is not to have a contract, to stall, to, to find out who's who are the so-called ringleaders, uh, you know, start making threats that we're going to have to shut down the operation, we're going to have to go to Mexico, whatever it happens to be. And so what we end up with is decertification campaigns after all that, because people are scared. Uh, people are intimidated. Uh, they didn't get a decent, they didn't get a first contract. Now, there are ways around that, and we can use uh, first contract arbitration. It's fairly important. But the, the reality is that just it's so hard to organize a union. When you do organize a union, it's so hard to get a first contract. Many people say, I want a union, but I can't get it. Um, and that's why we're seeing, I think, part of the reason anyway, why we're seeing this turn to more informal uh, unionization that we've been talking about in terms of community union uh, unionism uh, and solidarity unionism that we talked about uh, by workers, because the law in practice doesn't provide access to the rights that it offers people formally, many people anyway. Well, and I think it nicely shows, as you were suggesting there, that while uh, labor law purports to have this abstract equality to it, uh, in which you have the right to join a union, uh, the practicalities of how law enshrines a really fundamentally unequal relationship between those who own and those who labor uh, is just so apparent in those examples that you gave, as in the case of you must go Starbucks by Starbucks or Tim Hortons by Tim Hortons to try to achieve even a modicum of organized labor power by which to then negotiate with your employer. That's the exact opposite of how corporate power is actually structured in the sense of the corporation just has this not quite but fiat power over all those uh, particular work sites that it purports to own, right? So it's just a a fundamental imbalance behind a really thin veneer of uh, abstract equality. I'm glad you raised that because, and, and I should have I should have mentioned that as well because it's another huge theme here. Corporations and capital are becoming increasingly concentrated. If you look sector after sector after sector, the majority of the 
production or the services that are going on in that sector are being provided by four or five corporations. So we have this massive uh, acceleration of concentration of capital, and that's increased also by what's called financialization, the increasing power of financial, like Goldman Sachs and so on, to, to coordinate production even beyond the individual corporations that they influence and control. So what we have is this massive concentration, increasing concentration of corporate power. And the law is attempted and quite successfully is promoting a diffusion of worker power, splitting it up, fragmenting it at exactly the same time that corporations are becoming increasingly concentrated. I think that I'm, I'm glad you raised that because that's the, that is a hugely important theme to understand uh, the the the, uh, the increasing power of corporations that I I should have mentioned uh, earlier, and and I think it pairs also with this uh, really interesting rise in uh, what often gets called like third party uh, employment as well, right? Or uh, like the production of a category of workers who are in actual fact, clearly employed by one corporation, but there's an intervening third party who is their formal employer. Uh, This happens a lot in industrial sectors, obviously, where, for instance, most of the cleaning that occurs in, say, Pearson Airport is done by a category of workers who are, in fact, not employed by Pearson Airport, but by a third party. And therefore, it's this disjuncture between uh, the corporation that owns the site where they work almost every single hour of their working day and the corporation that is actually their formal employer in law and it's in the gap between those two that both of them can sort of skirt their actual responsibility to individual workers and use things like third-party site bans uh, to discipline workers and kick them out of their workplace. Yes, and another really important point that you raised, Phil. It's called fissuring. And it means that the corporation has all of these things that it's doing, but it's, it's, it's saying, well, now I'm going to subcontract that out to so-and-so. I'm going to have franchises for this. And I'll give you an example from my university, McMaster University. Uh, we successfully um, managed to, to, to workers themselves and, and their allies managed to make sure that the contract for the cleaners didn't go outside the university. Um, and then they wanted to subcontract it. And then they would say, oh, and then the, the pay that you're being blah, 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 that's not our problem. You know, we didn't do anything. It was this, uh, you know, that's what they're paying them. We just simply get their services. We pay whatever they ask for us to do. And because the cleaning unit was still inside our university, one of the things that uh, that cleaning unit was able to do was to raise the fact that they, the university was paying women workers less than male workers. And we got a, a fairly substantial increase for a number of workers. Uh, if you don't have it inside the, if you, if it's not inside the university, in this case, it was simply uh, a corporation that was subcontracted to the university we would have had no say. The workers would have had very little little say. Wouldn't have been able to actually put pressure on the actual employer, which is McMa- which was McMaster University, to improve the working conditions. So that's that's an, an extraordinarily important basis of, of corporate power and, a corp- and an extraordinarily important basis for being able to shuffle, to, to, to say, I'm not responsible. It's not me. <laughs> it's, it's the subcontractor. Well, in fact, it is it is you, but you've just simply disguised it by subcontracting it. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the most striking themes that I think I saw in each chapter was the enormous impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and the sort of way in which it's turned the conditions and social context of work into an even more uh, amplified version of the problems that were underlying prior to the pandemic. What has COVID-19 done to the ways in which we perform and think about work? And why was this focus so important to the text as a whole? Well, (laughs) it's in many respects, as you said, the COVID pandemic 
and and so many uh, management's responses to it highlighted the pre-existing bad working conditions, especially the unsafe working conditions, but the, the general lack of power that workers had, the kind of tyranny in the workplace that was already going on. Um, and then there was this, on top of this, there was this massive hypocrisy because do you, I don't know if you remember this at the beginning, of, particularly in maybe a year or so ago, more than today, many workers, I mean, I'm talking about care workers and warehouse workers and cashiers and teachers and nurses, were to, all, et cetera, et cetera, were told that they were essential workers. People had, you know, signs in their, in their windows said, thank you very much, heroes, et cetera, et cetera. They were told they were heroes. Um, but then they go to work. And by the way, this is still happening. They go to work without adequate PPE. Um, they go to work without uh, adequate social distancing. They go to work without paid sick leave, even though they're getting COVID. Um, and they're facing higher speed ups, more caseloads, uh, higher workloads, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of folks get COVID. Some of them die. I mean, here's an, I'm an example I'm very familiar with is what happened to um, migrant farm workers not far from where I live. Uh, where they were forced to live in um, housing with uh, people that were, you know, everybody's jumbled together in bunk beds, several bunk beds to a room, et cetera, et cetera. Um, didn't have uh, proper COVID uh, protections on the job and, and in, their, in their bunk houses and so on. And they died. They died. Uh, this, this, is, this is what was happening uh, in workplace after workplace after workplace, we had this, on the one hand, you're the heroes. On the one hand, you're the essential workers. We really appreciate you. On the other hand, we're not paying you more. We're paying you less. We're speeding up the work. We're doing et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that led to, uh, in a lot of workplaces, big protests by workers. Uh, again, the kind of self-organizing by workers we were talking about before. Um and a lot of people, I think, became much more aware of how bad their jobs were, how massive management power was, but also how disrespectful management uh, was to them. And, you know, they, you know the, the, the slogan was, we've gone from being heroes to zeros. Uh, and I think it was the hypocrisy on top of everything else um, that was a key part of the experience of COVID, and when you've been treated that way, uh, a lot of times it can lead to people um, trying to figure out, okay, it's time for us to organize. It's time for us to fight back. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's really remarkable um, to watch, because one of the core themes that we addressed earlier is the uh, sort of ubiquity of corporate media in particular. It was really uh, remarkable to watch the speed at which the corporate media narrative of those effects that COVID-19 was having in the realm of labor uh, be obfuscated. And so I distinctly remember I watched the numbers of COVID infection rates for the first two waves quite closely, uh, largely for the purposes of argumentation with certain family members about where infections were occurring because the narrative in the media was irresponsible individuals going out and having parties or whatever but the reported infection rates by the government's own data and anybody in the media could have actually just reported this very forthrightly were in warehouses or as you said in uh, agriculture work and so there's this serious disconnect between i think the actual lived experience of working class people throughout the pandemic and the available space in the public discourse to have that conversation. Uh, like it just, it, it's remarkable how much ideological work is being done to try to keep the conversation from going to really basic facts about where infections were occurring, who's suffering as a consequence, and also how deliberate it is in terms of the policies like a lot of other infections were in the construction industry and it wasn't missed i think by observers how closely each of the industries where high infection rates lined up with the uh, sectors where the, co the corporate leadership had lined up behind the 
Tory government here in Ontario. Yes, I mean, that's another phenomenon that um, that we have seen over the decades. It used to be that there were, I mean, just simple observation, there used to be labor reporters. There's a few good ones, decent ones now, but they're, they're quite rare. Um, so the reportage on labor by the mass media is overall, with some exceptions, highly deficient. Well, uh, it's traditional at the New Books Network to close by asking our guests what you're working on now. And so, Don, if you have anything that you're working on, whether that's research, community projects, uh, or anything that you'd like to highlight, the floor is yours. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the, it's important to, to have a kind of uh, a, community projects and labor projects that you're doing as long as the academic projects. I, I think it's important not to have too much separation. So um, friends and I have been working for some time trying to support migrant farm workers from Mexico who work in farms nearby. We you know, put on suppers for them, help them get access to health care. We advocate for them uh, to the extent possible um, when the employers are not treating them appropriately. Uh, Etc. and try to provide them with you know, social supports. Um, and um, another one is that uh, friends and I are, are, are uh, working on, bring, on an application to bring uh, Syrian refugees here to, to Hamilton. Um, a lot of folks have come in from Syria to Hamilton and they're doing extraordinarily well, incredibly, incredibly well under these difficult circumstances. So we're trying to do that. And then um, I'm working on a a book with uh, a friend of mine, uh, Graham Knight, who's an expert on on communications, um, and we're we're working on um, the, the you know this outsourcing of, of, of jobs to the global south um, through in what are called you know global sweatshops with really terrible working conditions, but also the way in which corporations are covering that up by what they call corporate social responsibility, which is an attempt to persuade uh, a lot of us or in, in, in terms of also the, the purchases of the brand goods, that this private corporate regulation of labor standards is, is uh, adequate for uh, dealing with the kinds of issues that you and I have been talking about for the last while. So that's what we're, what we're working on. And um, um, I'm, I hope maybe, maybe someday we can have a conversation about that book as well. <laughs> I'd look forward to that. That would be great. Uh, well, Don Wells, co-editor with John Peters of Canadian Labor Policy and Politics, uh, out now from University of British Columbia Press. Thanks so much. Thank you, Phil.